read Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. After church, sometime in the next day or so, you will experience something that is so normal and common and everyday that you won't notice it at all. All of us will. You will either at home, amongst friends, with co-workers, uh, whether it be out in the job or at the grocery store, you will interact with those who do not believe in Jesus. Many of these people you interact with will be wonderful, kind people, what we would call by all worldly standards, good people. Whether they be white, black, or brown, or yellow, whether they be rich or poor, whether they be uh, big or small, young or old, gay or straight, whoever they may be, wherever they may come from, whatever their background, you will interact with those who do not worship the name of Jesus Christ, and you will find that they're really friendly people, and they're nice, and they're kind, and you get along with them, and they're your friends, they're your family. People who are good and loving, who give money to charities, who are good at their jobs, who have kind families, and they may not believe in Christ specifically. Maybe they, they dabble in some spirituality, have a little bit of Buddhist thought sprinkled in with some Judeo-Christian values that have kind of been absorbed from our culture, and they're kind people. And you'll ask yourself, if you're thinking theologically and biblically, at some point in your life, you'll ask yourself, how could God send that person to hell? We're in a series of asking hard questions about our own faith and belief, and this is, I think, in my own mind, and particularly certain aspects of it, the hardest question, the hardest doctrine that we hold as Christians, the hardest teaching of Scripture, it revolves around hell and judgment. It's the question that stretches me the most in my own understanding. How can God send people to hell? We want to wrestle with the hard questions, ones that are uh, potentially offensive. And I think this may be the most potentially offensive question we'll wrestle with. 
How can our good and loving God send people to hell? Before we begin, it may be worth noting that part of what makes a truth or a biblical teaching offensive is defined by our culture and the day and age in which we live. Other cultures might not find this question as offensive or problematic. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, he writes about a friend he had from another part of the world who was not a believer, not a Christian, but they were discussing this aspect of Christian teaching, the doctrine of hell and judgment and condemnation. And his friend, he asked his friend about it, and his friend said, well, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That doesn't rub me the wrong way at all, not from where I come from. And his friend said, actually, what rubs me the wrong way, what's offensive is the idea that God could forgive. Like that God would just let offenses go. And from his culture, that idea was offensive. This whole teaching about turning the other cheek. You could just let anybody do anything they want. Like that's an offensive teaching. So as with all these questions that we're wrestling with, there's part of us that has to remember that, that what offends us may be kind of culturally conditioned in us. Uh, that the day and age in which we live has a lot to do with how we think and how we approach our scriptures. And what our goal through all of it is to be rewired according to scripture. To base our beliefs and our convictions on what is taught in scripture, not on what might potentially offend us. And that's part of my goal throughout this whole sermon series. That we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we would have our minds conformed not to what is potentially offensive in our day and age, because that changes as time goes on, but what is rooted and truthful according to the eternal word of God in Scripture. So we are going to base what we believe in Scripture, and we're going to go through that this morning, and hopefully, by God's grace, let Scripture teach us what is true about judgment. So we're going to look through Revelation 20, 11 through 15, And take in the scene of the final judgment before the great white throne and ask, how can God send people to hell? First, let's look at verse 11. I just want to focus on that. And here we see the inescapable God of judgment. That's what verse 11 is all about. The inescapable God of judgment. This God who sits on the throne, who judges, cannot be bad grammar, hidden from, or can't hide from him. Verse 11. And I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. We are, of course, in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a book of visions, of signs and symbols. They're metaphors. So when you see a vision of something, when John sees a vision of something, it may not be that what John sees is exactly what we'll see when we get to that moment that he's describing. Because it's a vision, it's a metaphor for a reality that we'll experience. So when I say that, what I mean is, it may not be that in the final judgment there is an actual physical great white throne, or the scrolls that are mentioned, or hell itself is actually physically like a fire. These are symbols and metaphors to describe a reality. So the the, the question is, what are they describing? Like, what's the point? And what's the point of a great white throne? And the idea is that there's this great throne, and the one who sits on it is the great Lord who can judge. 
It underlines the fact that God is the great judge, the king, the ruler of all the earth, before whom all will stand. We don't know in this scene whether it's God the Father or God the Son. Throughout Scripture and throughout Revelation, at various times, either is on the throne, so it could be one or both. That's not clear. But it is clear that God is on the throne. And I think before we get anywhere else, we have to stop there and ponder that. Like, take in what that means, that God is the one on the throne. Or as Romans 9 says, he is the potter, we are the clay. It means he is the one who controls and is the creator, and he is um, ruler over all that exists. So whatever questions we ask, whatever uh, pondering we throw at the feet of God, and we want to, as Russell so Eloquently, we talked about last week, we can go to God and we can make our plea before him. And he listens and he hears. We want to do that, but as we do that, remember that he is the sovereign Lord and ruler over all. And as God, as Lord, it means that all of this creation is actually about him. Everything that goes on, all the, the story of the world and history, it all is about him and his glory and not ours. And that's important when pondering ultimate questions like hell. We're used to uh, reading books, watching movies, and taking in things where we're the target audience. So we demand and expect that in those stories and movies and books, there will be an ending, a resolution that is satisfying to us. And if it's not satisfying to us, we don't like it. We're trained that way because we're the target audience. We want resolution that is satisfying to our ears. But creation and the universe isn't ultimately about us. God is on the throne. And the way it resolves is resolved to bring him glory and praise, not ultimately just to satisfy us. So whether or not we are pleased with how the story ends, it's not really the main point. Because God is on the throne. And it's all about his glory. We will find that if we align ourselves with him, it will be beyond pleasing the resolution. But he is one who sits on the throne, and the throne is white. I I think this is the only place in Revelation, maybe all scripture, I'm not sure, but the the only place in Revelation where the throne is actually described with a color. There are a lot of thrones through Revelation, but this is the one that has a color, white. What does that symbolize? Purity, holiness, spotlessness. The point is he is a perfect, spotless, pure and holy judge. And that's important as we think about judgment. As we think about sin and all of our offenses and sins and who we sin against, remember that we sin against the only one who is innocent. This is a a weird illustration, but go with me. After the service, if I see one of you eating a donut hole, and I go and I take that donut hole out of your hand and eat it myself, that's rude, right? Like, we could call that sinful, not appropriate behavior. If it's a five-year-old, and I take it out of their hands and eat it, that's worse. 
right? That's more sinful. It's literally like stealing candy from a baby. There's a reason that phrase exists, right? Why? Because the relative innocence of who you sin against impacts the morality of what you do. It impacts its sinfulness. To sin against an innocent person is a worse kind of sin. That is important as we think about who is the one sitting on the throne. This white throne, the holy and spotless and pure one, the only innocent being who ever existed, or maybe besides angels, get my theology right. But God is the innocent one. And to sin against him, who is infinitely holy, makes the sin all the worse. Because we are transgressing the only holy creator and judge. And before this holy judge, no one can hide, verse 11 says, from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. The idea is there's nowhere in creation you can hide because creation itself cannot hide from the judgment of God. One commentator said, the universe would flee from the awful presence of the judge if there were any place else to go. Growing up, I had a dog named Harley. I may have told the story before, I can't remember. I had a dog named Harley, and that was before my dad got a motorcycle, so that was the the precursor. Great dog, one of the greatest of all dogs. Loads of personality, lots of fun. And... A wonderful dog, good dog, but like all dogs, sometimes would do bad dog things. Would poop somewhere they wasn't supposed to poop, or nip at somebody he wasn't supposed to nip at, or something like that. And when he would do this, he would almost immediately feel shame, or know by the reaction of somebody in the room that he was supposed to feel shame. So he would often run up on the couch when somebody was sitting on the couch and go and dive behind them and stick his head behind that person to hide. Right? with his whole body sticking out, his tail tucked in, but if he could hide his head behind somebody, behind a pillow or a person, then he was hiding in his shame. Completely visible. And he was as effective in his hiding as anyone will be before God in the final judgment. All will be laid bare before him. Hebrews 4.13 No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All will be seen before God. All our works exposed. That is the basis for judgment. So verses 12 through 13 talk about all will stand before him and all will be exposed and they'll be judged for their works which will be exposed before God. So verses 12 through 13 tells the just basis for judgment. His judgment will be based on every evil work and deed. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The image is powerful and it's really clear, easy to understand. Sea, death, Hades, these are all ways of referring to the same thing, the the place where the dead lie. 
all throughout history, all the dead in every realm where the dead may be, all of those places will give up their dead. They'll be resurrected to stand before God in judgment. This is what Jesus talks about in John 5, 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All will be resurrected and stand before God. This is the ultimate egalitarian passage. There is no partiality. There is no um, preference. There is no paying off a judge. There is no injustice in this. No one will get special treatment because they were part of a certain class or because they had a certain background or they were wealthy or whatever it may be. All will stand equal before God in judgment. And what is the basis of judgment? Again, there's a symbol in this vision, but the... The symbol is the books, the scrolls, and on them written the works of all that we have done. The idea is every one of our actions and thoughts and all sins laid bare before God, the judge. Nothing hidden, nothing removed, everything serving as a basis for judgment. That is terrifying. If you could see all my works and read all my thoughts, you would remove me from pastoral ministry. I promise you. It's been said that no friendship could last a day if we could read each other's minds. You who are married, you have wisdom enough, hopefully, to not speak every thought that enters your head because there's evil within. We can't remember the sins we have committed. We don't want to. God graciously limits our memories so that we can't recall all the hurt we've caused, all the things we've done. We can't recall all the things we should have done that we failed to do. We don't have the capacity to know all that. And that it's God's grace that we don't. But he knows. And there will be an accounting. Every work laid before him. All held responsible. There's a a debate that goes on in Christian circles. and It's a debate not just for Christian circles. That debate of free will versus predestination. That's not actually just a Christian debate. That's a philosopher debate. And there are some, uh, Sam Harris, one in particular, who've written that actually none of us are really responsible for what we do. Even the murderer, even the criminal. Why? Well, we all have genetics. We all have environments we were raised in. Every single thing we do, every choice we make can be traced back to something that's influenced us and caused us that action. So all of us really ultimately uh, aren't fully responsible for what we do. So therefore we should be really, really, you know, kind and compassionate and gracious to one another and forgiving of one another because none of us are really responsible. Now, take that logic to where it ends. None of us are responsible for any of the good things we do either. All just programmed in there somewhere. And in the end, we are not responsible for what we do. We are just robots walking along, conditioned by our circumstances and past 
experiences, biology, whatever it may be. We were just born that way. We're not responsible. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches we are responsible for our works and will be held accountable. Scripture does not teach that our, our life is literally of no consequence, no accountability to it. Scripture teaches just the opposite. We will be held accountable for what we do. And that is a good thing. So we're getting back to our root question here. How can God send people to hell? One of the questions we have to ask is, how could God be good if he didn't? If there was no accountability, if there was no consequence, if there was no judgment for any of the things we did, what kind of God would he be? You, you may have heard of Larry Nasser, if you may know that name. He was the doctor for the U.S. Women's National Gymnastic Team for 18 years. And over the course of that time, it came to light, sexually abused over 250 female gymnasts. When we think of that kind of evil on that kind of scale, God's judgment becomes a very good doctrine. In fact, he would not be good if there was no judgment for that kind of evil. If there was no consequence. Somebody could be just horrifically abusive and hurtful and nothing happened at the end. We would question the goodness of God and say, Why? How could it be good if none of our actions matter and there is no consequence? But we serve a just God who will judge for every work and will be held accountable before him. And that judgment will be final and eternal. And that's what verses 14 and 15 are about. The terrible finality of judgment. All will stand before him. Some will experience what is described here as a lake of fire, a place of anguish and torment. And the terrible finality of judgment, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I'm going to speak to you, you know, a bad news sandwiched by good news. Here's the first part of that, the good news. Death is thrown into the lake of fire. Here's how we know we're talking about like or symbols and metaphors here because we have a metaphysical reality, a concept, and a state of existence, death, thrown into the lake of fire. So this can't be like a literal physical lake of fire because I can't wrap my head around that. I don't know what that means for the concept of death to be thrown into a literal physical place. So we're not talking about a literal physical lake of fire, but the lake of fire is describing something describing eternal judgment, eternal condemnation, removal from God. That's what's happening here. And death, here's the good news, is being thrown into it. This is the defeat of death, the defeat of all that we war against trying to keep people alive. Death, one day, thrown into the lake of fire. Death will die. Okay, so now we're talking about two different deaths, aren't we? 
There's a first death and a second death. What is the first death? The first death is the physical death that all experience. The end of our lives when we die, that's the first death, physical death. Everybody experiences the first death. Except for like one dude in the Old Testament who's called up, you know. But everybody else, even Jesus our Lord, experiences the first death, physical death. The question is whether you'll experience the second death. That is the one to be feared. The death we fear most is the, the second death. That's the lake of fire. It's what the lake of fire is describing. In a word, hell. In a place of eternal torment and anguish. We do not know exactly what this will be like. Mercifully, we don't know. The, the fire is a metaphor. But it's described variously in scripture. Hell, fire, restlessness, destruction, darkness, punishment. Basically, this eternal death, this second death, spiritual death, is the absence of God and all of his goodness. All of his life. It is the removal of that, or being removed from God and all of his goodness. That is what death is. It's a place where God is, in a sense, absent. All those who have hated God and rejected him will finally get their wish and be removed from him. It's a place where goodness and life and light and all that God is and brings will be taken away. It's an existence without Jesus the Lord. Rebecca McLaughlin describes it well in her book. She writes, If Jesus is the bread of life, loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, loss of Jesus is eternal death. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrificed for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. That is the second death. It's the loss of everything good and right in God and Jesus Christ. And the second death, the death of the Spirit, will be the experience of all those whose name is not found in the book of life. And this is, like I said, the hardest part of Scripture for me to wrap my head around and to understand it and actually to affirm. Just in all my study, maybe all yours, come to the place where I believe this, but it's really difficult. And I understand why many have tried to get around this by some way. So, for example, there's something called, or a belief called universal reconciliation. This is the idea that hell is real. God will judge and send people there, but it's not permanent. And over time, everybody will be reconciled to God once they have experienced an appropriate amount of judgment in hell. But that ultimately, once everybody's kind of done their time, they'll be reconciled to God. This was the belief behind Rob Bell when he wrote Love Wins, that back when he was trying to still kind of pretend to be a Christian. Um, 
This is what he kind of advocated. And I understand the appeal of it. It makes hell temporary. And in this model, you even Hitler, you know, the really bad people, they would have a longer period of judgment in hell. Then your garden variety non-believers would have shorter. But eventually, everybody, even Satan himself, be reconciled to God and in heaven once they've done their time. And man, do I understand the attraction of that view. Ultimately, it makes salvation by works. Once you've done your duty, then you can get into heaven. But I understand the appeal of it. There's another view, which I think is more within the bounds of orthodoxy, held by people like John Stott, which is annihilationism. That's the idea that hell is not eternal, is real. All those outside of Christ will experience it, but at some point they will cease to exist. So people in hell will just no longer be. That's why it's called annihilationism. Those who are judged in hell will be annihilated at some point. So they will do a certain amount of time in hell and experience that, and then they will cease to exist. And you understand the mercy of that position and why that is appealing, because it's not eternal. It sounds gentler, more palatable, that hell would not be eternal. I wish I could hold to this. I would like to, but I can't, because every time I return to Scripture, I don't see that being described. Again, I want my belief and our belief to be based on what we believe Scripture actually says, not what we want it to say. Because I don't want a God of my own choosing. I'm sure I wouldn't choose the right one. And I would create in my fallen mind an inferior God. So I want to believe what is given to me in Scripture. And we can debate about this. You join me if you want. But I believe as it's revealed to me that Scripture repeatedly teaches that hell, just like heaven, is eternal. And I can't get around it. So for example, Matthew 25 and the great separating of people at the end, and kind of a similar passage to this, the separation of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, 46, Jesus says this of the condemned and judged. He says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And I have to believe the eternal in both of those phrases means the same thing. Those are the options. Eternal punishment or eternal life. If heaven's eternal, I think hell is as well. Jesus is just teaching what Daniel said in Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Again, the same thing is said, parallel, everlasting life, everlasting death, contempt, punishment. Revelation 14.11, Jesus says about those who worship the beast when they are judged, he says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Speaking of eternal judgment. You don't have to go far from where we are in this text, in Revelation 20, just a couple of verses prior, verses 9 and 10. 
Here the Bible describes what happens to all those who are defeated by God in the end. Then they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All those who worship the beast, all those who are aligned with him, defeated, and they are tormented day and night forever and ever. And I don't know how else to interpret forever and ever. So again, this is the one doctrine in Christianity I think I might not want to believe, but it is taught so clearly to me that I can't get around it. I can appreciate what C.S. Lewis says, that there's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. So it leads me in a place of accepting that this doctrine of eternal hell is real, is what Scripture teaches. And now what do I do with that? Here's the application for us. I know we want applicable sermons, things that we can use and then take away and say, what do I do with this through my week? Here's what we do with the doctrine of eternal hell. Warn people. That's the application. Hell is real. God is a judge. He will judge all according to what they have done. So sound the alarm. There are those who need desperately to know this. The application of a terrifying doctrine of hell is take it seriously and preach the gospel. Preach good news because good news is here. There's the other side of the the sandwich I talked about. (laughs) Good news. Death will be destroyed. Bad news. Many would be destroyed along with it. Good news. There's a way of escape. There's another book here. We didn't talk about it, but I want to end focusing on that book. Verse 15. We'll end by talking about the grace of God in judgment. The grace of God in judgment in verse 15. Look at it again. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Do you see the condition there? The if? There's an alternative here. There's an alternative path to the lake of fire. If anyone's name is written in that book of life, they will be spared from this. 
How does one avoid being thrown in a lake of fire? Their name is written in the book of life. Here, this is actually taking, again, language from the book of Daniel. Daniel 12.1 speaks of those who will be saved. It says, but at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. It's from Daniel 12. This book appears, again, actually turn there if you want. Revelation 13. Just turn a few pages prior from Revelation 20 to Revelation 13. Revelation 13.8, this book is mentioned here. It's a fuller description of this book. This verse describes all those who worship the beast. It says, All who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. What book is this? The book of life. Let's describe it a little more. It's the book of life, the Lamb who was slain. That's what determines who is in this book. That's who's associated with it. Those names that are written in this book are those who are found in Christ. Those who have life in the Lamb who was slain. This is the gospel here in this book, that Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died and he shed his blood on the cross for the sins of all who would call him and worship him by name, those whose names are found in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain for us. Now, notice the difference between the scrolls and the book, or the the scrolls and the one scroll. What's the difference between the two? The scrolls are a list of works. The book of life is a list of names. There's a huge difference. The book of life is not a list of good works that we can all do to merit our entrance into heaven. The book of life is just a list of names. It is a list of grace. So all your works are recorded in the the books and in the scrolls. But the question is, is your name by grace written in the book of life? Who wrote it? God is one who writes it. Who secures it? Jesus Christ by his blood. When was your name written in that book? You want to talk about grace? Before the foundation of the world. Before you had done anything right or wrong. By grace your name was written. That's the point of that doctrine. Your name was written there by God before you had done anything right or wrong, proving you didn't earn this. It wasn't merited. If you want to merit your way, you'll merit your way into hell. That's the option. That's where your works are recorded. But if your name is by grace written by God before the foundation of the world, you have entrance into eternal life. It's by grace We are saved. Dennis Johnson says, Written in this book are not deeds, but names. It is the registry of those from every nation whom he purchased from God with his blood. It is the one book in all the universe that spells the difference between eternal life and unending death. While people are justly judged according to their deeds, only those inscribed in the Lamb's book of life will escape the lake of fire. This is the grace of God. Anyone's name can be written in that book. It is not dependent on what you've done. 
where you're from, who you are, what your status is, what you have. Anyone's name can be written in that book, no matter whatever is written on those other scrolls. I mentioned Larry Nasser earlier. At his trial, a former gymnast who was abused by her spoke to him. You may know her name, Rachel Denhollander. She was one of the key witnesses for bringing him to justice. And Rachel Denhollander is a Christian who understands both justice and grace that both belong to our God. And she told him at the trial, she told him the Bible carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. An incredible testimony. You will face justice before God. If you accept his grace, you will find only mercy. I think that makes sense of the world and all that we want in it. We want a world of righteousness and justice. And we want a world of grace and forgiveness. And at the judgment, there is both. So we asked, how can God send people to help? The biblical answer is that God condemns people justly, righteously, in goodness, in holiness, and love. We can also ask a second question. How can God spare people from hell? Through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf because of God's grace and mercy and love for people. And as I said in the beginning, my call for all of us that we would accept that grace and preach it to a world in need of it. Would you pray with me? Our Father and God, help us to believe what your word says, to take it seriously, to know uh, the terrible reality of hell, that there is a condemnation that is righteous and just and merited for all except for those who fall on your mercy and grace, and that's all we can do. We praise you, Lord, that names are written, that our names are written in that book of life. We thank you that your son has done the work to make it possible and to secure our names in that book. And Lord, we pray and we ask and we trust that you will never wipe out 
or remove our names from that book. Help us, Lord, to trust your judgment, to trust your mercy, knowing that your grace and your mercy is greater. We praise you. Amen.